Hi everyone, um, Chris Fudo here. I am um, I am an attorney at Foley Hoag, and I am our co-chair of our um, our COVID nineteen task force. I am also um, the co-chair of the BBA's Labor and Employment Steering Committee, and we are very you know speaking for for my committee members and co-panelists here, Jack Aaron and uh, Nate Goldstein. We really. Um, are appreciative that the BBA has asked us back to um, essentially continue what is our presentation. It's a sequel, I guess, um, a sequel to our prior presentation on what Massachusetts and the federal government are doing with respect to the COVID-19 crisis and things that um, people should, be, should know about as it relates to employment law. Um, so um, I appreciate everyone joining us and uh, a lot has happened since we last spoke to you guys, um, uh, particularly a lot of regu more regulate regulation on the state level. Um, we had a, um, a lot of guidance from the DOL on the, on the, fa on the family, um, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. So um, well, let's get right into it. Um, we're gonna switch up the order a little bit um, because of speaker availability. And we're gonna turn it over to, I'm gonna turn it over to Jack, who's gonna talk about what's been going on at the state level since our last, um, since our last presentation. Thank you, Chris. Um, and thank you to the uh, Boston Bar Association again for the opportunity. So as Chris mentioned, I am going to focus on what's happening on, at the state level in terms of the Coronavirus Response Act. If we could go to the, uh, the first, first slide. So as we talked about last time, Governor Baker issued an emergency order requiring all businesses that do not provide COVID-19 essential services to close their physical workspaces. And in, at the time it was in effect uh, until early April. Uh, it was then extended on March 31st until May 4th, 2020. So if you are not a uh, facility that is providing what's defined as COVID-19 essential services, essentially you need to shut down and or uh, have folks work via telecommuting until May 4th. May 4th is obviously a big day here in Massachusetts because that's also the day that the schools are currently closed until. So right now the state is essentially shut down. Uh, we're in shutdown mode until May 4th. And of course, a lot of folks are speculating that we may end up going beyond that. We could take a, a look at the next slide. Um, so we covered this in, in pretty, um, uh, uh, pretty comprehensively last time in terms of the essential services under the emergency order. So. If we can just go ahead to the next slide and the one after these, these up here are just showing what was there before. Uh, and I think folks have a pretty good feel of that healthcare, public health, law enforcement, um, communications and IT. Uh, I think folks have a pretty good sense of what um, is covered by the order, but I wanted to get to some of the changes. If we could go to the next slide, please. On the expanded list, um, so what happened is the, the list of essential services was expanded in some ways. And so how was it expanded? Well, 
workers within the manufacturing and supply chain that support essential services, that was one area of expansion. So these are workers in medical and biomedical facilities, uh, manufacturing workers, uh, workers that are supporting um, manufacturing safety equipment for first responders, public safety personnel, workers that are in the manufacturing of uh, personal protective equipment or PPE. So that was a bit unclear whether folks that are maybe not providing essential services as we think of it in terms of COVID-19 essential services, but are providing materials to companies uh, and are within that supply chain of essential services. That was expanded and clarified by the uh, revised order and guidance from the governor. In addition, certain healthcare providers, chiropractors and optometrists were added to the list. Further uh, sanitation workers were added to the list, so it was clear that they could go forward. Um, bicycle maintenance was officially added to the list. They were operating previously under the transportation exception for essential services, but I don't know if any of you folks have uh, noted recently, but bicycle sales are, are way up and um, people are looking to, to do something they can do with social distancing. And so bicycle shops are operating and you can go there and it all has to be done through no contact and be done within the parameters of social distancing, but bicycle maintenance shops are operating. Landscapers and real estate agents were also expressly put into the new order so they can continue to operate. We can take a look at the next slide, please. The essential services list, when it was revised by the governor, in addition to expanding some of the categories, also restricted some categories and, and made the order more, um, more restrictive and made clear that certain businesses could not continue to operate. And one of those areas of additional, one of those areas of additional restrictions was uh, with respect to hotels. Originally, the hotel industry basically had a blanket exception. This is no longer the case. Hotel facilities can only now be made available for workers and others that are fighting the spread of the COVID-19 virus. So that's been a big change there. There is a specific guidance that has been put out for hotel uh, and motels. Um, and I provided the link to that here on the slide deck. Construction related activities, that also got significantly modified in the new order. Um, it is net, construction activities are only essential, only COVID-19 essential now if they are related to housing. So the new order significantly curtailed uh, the amount of construction that can be done under the new, under the new guidance. Uh, recreational marijuana shops remain non-essential. Uh, this is a serious point of contention right now. Um, and some of you may be involved or may have seen that recreational marijuana dispensaries are challenging this order. They are claiming that this is unfair because uh, liquor stores are remaining open, medicinal marijuana shops are remaining open, um, and the governor has closed down recreational um, marijuana shops. And these, these uh, dispensaries are, are claiming essentially that they're being wrongfully discriminated against. So uh, Justice uh, Salinger, in the business litigation session in Suffolk is expected to rule on that shortly as to whether or not um, recreational marijuana shops are gonna open up. Um, one of the governor's justifications, I, I just find this interesting as a, as a legal matter is that um, we're the only uh, state that has 
um, if we opened up recreational marijuana, we, we'd be bringing in a lot of other folks from, from outside the state um, who would then be subject to quarantining um, orders and that that could pose complications. So that's one of the big, big disputes right now. So we'll see how that plays out. We can take a look at the next slide. Um, again, if we covered this a bit last time, so I won't spend too much time on it, but if you're uh, operating a business that is not currently identified as, as conducting essential services pursuant to the governor's order, and you believe that you are in fact providing COVID-19 essential services, which can again be services related to attacking and solving the COVID-19 crisis, or they can be, you know, other things that are just essential to uh, way of life in terms of transportation, um, uh, technical support. Uh, there are certain carve-outs for those um, essential services. So if you believe that you are running an essential business and you believe that you have been uh, shut down and you have the right to continue operating, you can apply for a specific designation request uh, through the state website. And I provided the link here, or you can contact covid19.biz at mass.gov. Um, again, the guidance does specifically say if you are already covered, if your business is already covered and it already explains what you can and cannot do, you are discouraged from applying for a COVID-19 uh, essential services exemption. Um, this is something we've been working with clients a lot on, I will say, in terms of um, lobbying or attempting to make an effort uh, to get their business uh, designated as an essential service, or at least finding a way to operate with uh, social distancing in place. We could take a look at the next slide. So that, I'm gonna move on now, and I just have, I think about uh, 10 minutes or so before I turn it over to the federal side, but I wanna cover the unemployment changes that have been happening in the state um, and at the federal level. So. Just as a quick initial point on this, um, across the country now, there's about there have been about there were two, 22 million claims for unemployment last month, which is the highest number of unemployment claims that the country has seen since January 2010, which of course was the Great uh, Recession. Um, Economists are estimating that by May, the April employment numbers could be at 15%. Um, and in Massachusetts, while last week was a drop from the prior week, um, we still have an incredibly uh, high number of unemployment claims in, in Massachusetts. Um, and, this is, and so this is being addressed by the CARES Act, which Nate and Chris are gonna talk about further in terms of what the CARES Act does and what the FF, um, the, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act does in terms of leave and possible loans to businesses. But as part of this CARES Act and part of this $2.2 trillion relief package, um, the federal government has poured a lot of money into helping states with unemployment. And unemployment, of course, is a hybrid of a federal and state program. It is a federal program. There is money coming from the federal government, but it is administered by the states. So with this drastic increase in unemployment, um, uh, in the number of unemployment claims, here are sort of the basics that uh, explain what's happening under the CARES Act. 
First of all, the CARES Act increases unemployment benefits by an additional $600 a week. So if you are getting unemployment in Massachusetts or under any state law, you get your, your unemployment benefit, which is can depend on a lot of factors, but is typically around half of your uh, salary or half what you were making, plus you get an additional $600 a week. It also increases the number of weeks one can receive by 13 additional weeks. So in Massachusetts, you get 26 weeks of unemployment. Now you're going to be entitled to 39. The third one is really a, um, a major uh, issue and may not be as um, interesting to employers, but I think just as a, as a legal matter, is really a uh, watershed piece of legislation. It expands unemployment insurance to workers formerly in ineligible, such as independent contractors and gig economy workers. Uh, those individuals had never been able to apply for unemployment before, and it's just a reflection of the really um, unprecedented and um, serious times we're living in that they will now be able to apply. And then fourthly, it authorizes the expanding of state work share programs, which I will talk about. If we could take a look at the next slide, please. So the $600 a week in terms, this is called the federal pandemic unemployment compensation. So all of these new unemployment changes have these new acronyms that we're all learning as lawyers. This one is the FPUC. So again, what's really critical about this one is that if you are getting any unemployment benefit, uh, at all, you are then entitled to $600 on top of that on a weekly basis from the federal, federal government to the CARES Act. A lot of employers have been asking us, you know, should we take the loan under the, should we try to take the loan under the CARES Act? Should we take advantage of the paycheck protection, um, uh, the PPP that's been put in place? Um, or should we simply um, lay off our employees? And you know what's gonna be better for us and what's gonna be better for the employees? And again, under this new program, there will be some employees that will probably end up making more under unemployment than they may have been making uh, while they were working because the $600 additional every week is not capped in any way, it is not prorated in any way, um, it is not tied in any way or indexed to what you are making. If you are eligible for $1 of unemployment compensation, again, you're, you're gonna be eligible with more than $1. It's not gonna work out that way. But if you were eligible to $1 under your state unemployment compensation, you're gonna get an additional $600 a week. We could look at the next slide, please. This one I've already kind of covered, but just to explain, this is the additional 13 weeks, and this one is the Pandemic Emergency Unemployment Compensation, PEUC. So for this one, unemployed individuals who exhaust their regular UI benefits, they're going to get an additional uh, 13 weeks. And importantly, again, those that are qualifying for these additional 13 weeks are going to get that additional $600 uh, pursuant to the CARES Act. Um, now this one, I just pause on this one for a minute to note that um, this is also going to be available for partial unemployment. The way the statute is written, um, certainly a lot of um, folks could make the argument that it is not 
supposed to provide um, an additional number of weeks for partial unemployment. Um, that's pretty clear on the face of the statute, but the DOL just came out with a letter um, that said they are going to uh, go ahead and apply this to partial un unemployment. So that just, again, kind of shows you where where things are and the idea that the the spirit behind the act is quite remedial and the effort here is to get money into the pockets of of americans and, and employees and, and folks being laid off um we could go to the next slide please just have a couple more so the last one i want to touch on here in terms of a new sort of benefit is this pua another uh acronym and this is the one that I mentioned before that is really significant because it is the first time that self-employed independent contractors, gig economy workers will be able to collect unemployment. It, I will note that this is not yet set up at the Massachusetts state level. If you go on the Massachusetts DUA, Division of Unemployment um, Assistance website, they're saying that this should be ready to go by the end of April. But again, because this has been something, it used to be that if you were an independent contractor or gig worker and you applied for unemployment and you weren't able to show that you were somehow misclassified or entitled to uh, be an employee, your, your claim would be denied uh, without any further discussion whatsoever. Now you can make this application, but the states aren't really ready for it. So Massachusetts, for example, is getting this going and independent contractors and gig workers will be able to apply for this at the end of the month and it will the payments will be retroactive until january 27th 2020 and then this sunsets december 31st 2020 you know will this change things going forward so that other gig workers and independent contractors may have employment rights when this pandemic is hopefully over you know that that certainly could be a possibility but interesting to note that's where we are now and again these independent contractors and gig workers not only get what they're entitled to under state law, but they also get the additional $600. Just one quick point on this. We're not really sure what the standard is going to be. What the law says is that it's going to be uh, eligibility is going to be interpreted in accordance with state law. Again, we don't have any state law and when independent contractors are eligible for unemployment employees have to lose one-third of their salary or one-third of their wages um, looking at that on a week-by-week -week basis so perhaps that could be the same standard for independent contractors that would seem to sort of make sense but again we just don't know what that standard is going to be uh, yet thanks jack so um are you ready to for us to transition into the federal stuff we can um, go ahead and do that. The only last point I wanted to mention was on the work share um, program, work share, um, work sharing program that I had mentioned uh, last time. I think folks are pretty familiar with how that works because I went over it in quite a bit in detail last time. But I just want to note that because Massachusetts has a work sharing program, um, companies that want to avoid layoffs and enter into a work sharing program with the DUA have that available to them. And um, because that is now being paid for by the federal government, um, it is likely that that is not going to be held against uh, employers in that they're essentially not gonna have that, um, uh, they're not gonna have any uh, tax penalty related with those unemployment uh, payments. So again, the work share program is something that a lot of 
companies are looking at and um, because Massachusetts already has some one of those programs in place that the amount of unemployment for that work share program is being covered entirely by the federal government. So with that, that's a good segue to turn it over to you guys and, and get into um, more of the federal issues. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. Um, can we move to the next slide? And then the next slide? And then the next slide? Here we go, great, thank you. So um, Nate and I are gonna be talking about what's happening at the federal level. And um, I'm gonna start out with talking about the uh, an update on the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. Um, as you may recall, if you participated in our last, um, our last program, um, a lot of the responses we had were uh, as to how the statute was gonna be interpreted was we weren't sure yet because we were waiting for guidance from the DOL. Well, we got that guidance from the DOL. Um, it wasn't always clear. <laughs> it was um, at some points shifting. Um, at some points, um, you know, individuals at the DOL were providing information that was not consistent with, with the guidance that was provided um, formally. So um, there was some confusion, but um, you know, Nate and I wanna talk about what the guidance as we currently understand it exists um, and go through that. Can um, we get the next slide? So um, we, um, uh, there were, uh, just everyone just understands the basis of the, um, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. Um, it essentially provided upwards of um, up, uh, uh, up, uh, uh, 80, 80 hours of paid sick leave for certain um, at, at a at paid sick leave at a cap amount for a period of two weeks. Um, and then after that related to, you know, childcare and closure of schools, if somebody needs to take time off, um, expand, expanded the FMLA to provide paid FMLA, FMLA leave for 12 weeks um, for, well, the first two weeks would not be paid, but eight week, 10 weeks after that for, um, for um, to care for a child whose school is closed or childcare provider is, um, is, is not available. Um, and then there is a tax credit component where um, uh, there will be a credit. You can apply for, a, you can retain a credit on your payroll taxes due for any amounts that are paid on the, um, for um, paid leave under the, under the FFCRA. Um, so we're gonna go through the guidance and, and, um, on, and deal, delve and dig into some, drill into some specific issues about how the act generally is gonna be interpreted. Um, so to be clear, in terms of effective dates, the paid leave provisions became effective on April 1st, 2020. So that means that um, April 1st, 2020 is when the leave was available. Um, the paid leave is not retroactive. So if somebody was taking leave for a qualifying reason, before April 1st, 2020, they are not entitled to leave under the statute. Um, and um, they, uh, there was some, some, some question initially as to how long this leave was going to be available. And it's clear from the guidance in the DOL that it's only gonna be available as of right now from April 1st through the 31st of 2020. So it won't, it won't go into 2021. 
One of the questions um, that a lot of people have been asking is if um, somebody is asking, and this is a question that came up um, on the chat, but um, if somebody is not coming to work for a reason that is not covered under the qualifying reasons under the FCRA, what do you do? In other words, a lot of people are just kind of scared. Um, they are concerned about contracting um, uh, 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 COVID-19 and they want to self-isolate even though, but one of the qualifying um, reasons may not apply here. What do you do about that? Well, I mean, it's clear under the, the, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act that there are no protections for those employees. Um, this doesn't address those situations. But my advice on that is, um, while there may not be protections under the FFCRA, you may have obligations under the ADA. For instance, if somebody is um, does not have COVID but is afraid of, of, of leaving self-isolation because they are uh, immune deficient in some way or more have, a, have an underlying medical condition that's more likely that's going to lead them to more likely to contract COVID or to have a serious COVID case. If they do contract it, you may have an obligation to, to accommodate those individuals, but generally there are no protections for people who just, essentially people who are deemed essential workers, not to come to work simply because they don't want to risk exposure to COVID. Um, Nate, do you, did you have anything to add on that? This was just yeah, a question. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I would say that there are also obligations that employers should consider under OSHA. Um, it's right. So, uh, and that's going to vary uh, depending on the workplace and the situation, you know, and the details of the workplace. But employees are entitled to protections under OSHA. There is justified work refusal. There are state analogs uh, for those types of claims. So. Um, you know, I, I, speaking in part from my employee side uh, perspective, but for anyone involved in this crisis to try to, you know, navigate it appropriately, I would um, keep those in mind since uh, employees do have uh, rights protected under OSHA. Right. And, the, and to be clear, in case you're not familiar with OSHA, those were, 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 will apply specifically to the facts of the individual workplace. And if somebody is alleging that there, there are, that something about the particular workplace is not safe, then there would be potentially rights under OSHA, right? Um, so um, if we could have the next slide. So the other questions that were coming up were five, the 500 employee tests. So the act only applies to employers, employers who have less than 500 full-time or part-time employees in the U.S. Um, so a lot of people are trying to do, employers are trying to do the math to figure out whether they were um, covered under this. Um, so um, it includes full-time employees. The DOL was clear that includes part-time employees and it's, and it's specific to U.S. employees. So anybody that's in the U.S. In the state in the United States, in D.C., any territory or possession, um, in the U.S., so if you, if you have uh, four, uh, 499 employees in the mainland and then two in Guam, you're, you're, you're in luck. Um, so um, in, in, in terms of including employees, it, it, it's clear independent contractors are not employees, so they are not included in the calculation. So if you have a contractor 
somebody that you're contracting with individually as an independent contractor, that person would not be included in the 500 employee count. But it would include employees who are on leave, um, employee temporary employees who are jointly employed by another employer. So if you've made the determination that you were a joint employer of somebody who's employed by another employee, you can count those uh, employees that are jointly employed in your 500 employee calculation. And then it also includes day laborers who are supplied by a temp agency. So if you have a contract with a temp agency and the temp agency provides um, workers to you pursuant to a contract, um, you can count those day laborers for the purposes of the, um, the 500 employee uh, threshold. Uh, so generally, the guidance from the, the, from the DOL is that a corporation is a single employer. So um, if, uh, but in two circumstances, you can include um, employee, two separate entities could be considered, or a group of entities could be considered a single employer um, for purposes of the 500 employee threshold. If, if two entities, one employee, one entity is a joint employer of, of another entity's employees under the test that's um, uh, set forth by the FLSA, all common employees would be counted. And then um, the, the DOL will also apply the integrated employer test, which is if, they, if a group of separate corporate entities um, of common ownership, common policies, common control of labor, uh, uh, common labor management. Um, the, that's, those are a few of the factors. It, it, you, would be, you could be considered an integrated employer under the FMLA. And in those circumstances, all employees of the entities that are consist of the integ integrated employer could be included for purposes of reaching the 500 employee threshold. Next slide. Um, the, so some, some stuff was sort of out of order. Can we skip these next few slides? Perfect. That was just covered some of the stuff that was that that we covered last time. Um, so the other exemption that people were had a lot of questions about was the small business exemption. And what the small business exemption is is um, in the statute. It said that. Um, that uh, 50 employers with 50 less than 50 employees could be exempt from the child care related leave provisions um, if doing so would jeopardize the viability of a, the business as a going concern. And there were a lot of questions about can, how you applied for the exemption, um, what it meant to be, you know, jeopardizing the viability of a business as a going concern. And the DOL has said that um, given some important guidance on the small business exemption. First, um, there's nothing you need to do to apply for the small business exemption. Um, you can claim the small business exemption and you should document that you're claiming the small business exemption and the reasons why you're claiming the small business exemption if you are an employer, but there is no requirement that you apply for it essentially it seems as that the DOL is going to address issues of, of people claiming the exemption if they receive a complaint from an employer who claims that um, an employee who claims that they were denied leave they'll investigate it and they'll make a determination as to whether the exemption was properly uh, claimed but an employer the DOL said that an employer can claim the exemption if an authorized officer has determined one of three things one is 
if paying the providing the paid sick leave or expanded family medical leave would result in expenses and financial obligations of the business exceeding available business revenues and cause the small business to cease operating um, in a in in its um, in its in a minimal capacity. Um, the DOL has also said that um, if the absence of a particular employee or group of employees who are requesting the leave um, would um, put the business in uh, would pose a substantial risk to the financial health or operational capacities of the small business um, because they have some specialized skills, knowledge, or responsibilities, you can claim the small business exemption. And then if um, if you are if you granted the leave, the business granted the leave, you, it would not have sufficient workers who would be able to perform the services such that, um, uh, and, and you need those in order to operate in a minimal capacity, you would be in a position to claim the exemption. Next slide, please. Um, then there is a question of um, healthcare providers. Um, the statute provided that employers may exclude a healthcare provider from the paid sick leave and um, expanded family medical leave. Um, and what the health, what the the statute, the the right, the the DOL did was um, impose a very very broad definition of who constitutes a healthcare provider for purposes of the exemption. Now, to be clear, the definition of healthcare provider when it relates to who needs to provide information for the, um, to support somebody's leave, um, that is um, a, a, a narrower definition. But in terms of the definition that's being imposed for the exemption, it's basically anyone who's employed at a doctor's office, hospital, healthcare center, clinic, um, nursing facility, retirement facility, a home healthcare provider, um, basically, it's a very, very, it's an extremely broad exemption for uh, employees to say that that employee, that um, you, that the, the, that an employer can exempt a, an employee from that. Next slide. And um, the DOL also said it includes any individual employed at an entity that contracts with any of those types of institutions to provide services. Um, it, um, it, it's anyone uh, who's employed by the ent an entity that provides medical services, produces medical products, or is otherwise involved in the making of COVID-19 related medical equipment, tests, drugs, vaccines, diagnostic vehicles, or treatments. And um, it includes any individual that a state or territory determines as a healthcare provider. So it's a, it allows the states to say, to designate certain people to be healthcare providers. So again, a very, very broad definition and one that's been very controversial. Um, uh, there have been um, a lot of complaints that the definition is so broad that we're not, we're, that we're really, it's allowing employers to exempt people who are not essentially essential healthcare workers. Um, next slide, please. Um, the DOL also defended, uh, defined what it means to be an emergency responder who may be exempted from the, from the leave requirements. And basically it's anyone who's necessary for the tra provision, transport, care, healthcare, comfort, or nutrition of patients or is needed for the response to COVID-19. Um, and it, it includes, there's a list there, I won't go into all of it, but 
includes National Guard, law enforcement, fire, uh, you know, EMTs, 911 operators, um, child welfare workers, a lot of various different people, including people who work at facilities that employ those individuals. So if you work at some, at a police station but are not a police officer, it would be covered. Or if you work at a um, at, at, at a um, at an ambulance company, but are not an EMT, it would still could be you could still uh, an employee could still be exempted. Um, next slide. Um, and then a lot of questions about pay during leave. Um, so, how would you calculate pay for um, in particular situations? I've sort of broken this down into three specific issues. One is pay for part-time employees. So the um, Part-time employees are entitled to leave for pay for their leave for an average number of hours, um, work hours in a two-week period. So um, whatever the part-time employee works on average during a two-week period, if they're taking um, leave, that's what they would be entitled to, um, whatever their average number of work hours per day, that's what they'd be entitled to. Um, if the schedule varies, then the, you use a six-month average to calculate it. Um, and if the person hasn't been over six months, but if the person hasn't been employed over six, or at least six months, then you use the number of hours that the employee had and the employee agreed to that the, that the employee would work upon hiring. And if there's no agreement, lots of ifs in this, in, in the rig, in the guidance here, then um, you calculate the average hours per day the employee was scheduled to work over the entire term of employment. That's if they were working less than six months. Um, in terms of overtime, um, emergency FMLA, um, the, that provision provides, under that provision, an employee is paid for all hours normally scheduled to work, and including overtime hours. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to pay the overtime premium. It just means that if somebody during um, FMLA, emergency FMLA worked more than 40 hours in a week, you have to pay them, give them, when you're paying them their leave, you you, you factor in the fact that they were working, they worked, you know, 50 hours in a week as opposed to 40. Um, paid emergency sick leave, however, is capped at 80 hours, regardless of um, overtime. So if somebody worked um, 60 in a week and then worked, you know, 20 or, or 30 in the next week, then you would, once you hit the 80 hour cap, you're no longer required to, to, to pay that amount. Next slide. Um, and then, there's some rules regarding calculating the regular rate of pay for the purposes of determining what people are owed for um, paid sick leave and paid um, FMLA leave, uh, paid expanded FML. Um, the, you use an average rate um, for a period of up to six months. If the person's been less than employed less than six months, then it's the regular rate is the average regular rate of pay for each week worked. Um, you, if, if somebody receives commissions or tips or piece rates, um, those amounts are incorporated into, into the calculation the same way that you would calculate them, add them into the regular rate for purposes of calculating the regular rate under the FLSA. You can also, the, the DOL says, you can also add all compensation as part of the regular rate over a six month period and divide that sum over all hours worked in the same period. And I'm gonna move quickly because I don't wanna eat into Nate's time. Um, can I have the next slide, please? So um, for the purpose of FML, um, the expanded um, FML, you, um, the employee has to work for at least 30 calendar days. Um, they, they, 
the DOL says that means that the person's been on the on on the payroll for at least 30 calendar days prior to the day the league would begin. If somebody was working prior previously as a temporary employee on a full-time basis, any days previously worked would as a temporary employee would count towards the 30 days. Next slide. Um, there's been a lot, there was talk about um, when work is available. Um, so uh, if an employer permits telework for normal wages, the person, uh, employee is not eligible for paid leave. But if an employee is unable to work, um, if the employee has worked for the employee and the person can't do that work for an, a COVID-19 qualifying reason, either under normal circumstances at the normal work site or via telework, um, the person would be unable to work and would be entitled to leave under the uh, under the statute. Um, I should say statutes because they they the the paid leave and the expanded FMLA are technically two separate acts. Um, and um, if if the DOL has said that, so if somebody can't work their normal number of hours or uh, uh, um, it can't work their normal scheduled hours, but could do it at um, a different schedule. So if an employee could say, maybe not work in the mornings, but could make those up hours hours up in the evening, um, at, the employee is able to work and leave isn't necessary um, unless COVID-19 would, would prevent, a qualifying reason would prevent you from working that schedule. Um, next slide. Um, intermittent leave, um, essentially I think the bottom line of the DOL's approach to intermittent leave is if the employer is willing to allow it, you can take the leave intermittently. So um, if it's while teleworking, um, paid sick leave can be taken intermittently. If, um, the, if the employee cannot work telework during the normal schedule of hours due to a qualifying reason and the employer allows it. The person is at a, their usual work site. So this situation would be somebody who's an essential worker at this point. Um, if somebody is um, if the person's um, if the person's the reason for the leave is one of the child care related reasons and um, the employer employer agrees the leave can be taken intermittently otherwise um, paid sick leave has to be taken in full day increments um, and then when you're doing intermittent uh, intermittent FMLA leave whatever increment the employee and the employer agree to is the increment that people could take um, intermittent FMLA, uh, intermittent um, FFCRA leave. Next slide. Um, um, so under the under the um, FML, um, it can be taken intermittently. Um, if an employee can't work the normal schedule because of a childcare-related reason and the employer allows it at the usual work site, it's only allowed with the employer's permission. Um, next slide. Now, hopefully, I think this is my last one. Um, this is a question that's been coming up a lot, um, and I'm just going to quickly go through it, but employer record keeping. So, um, Employers are required, when somebody is requesting leave, regardless of whether you grant it or not, the employer has to document the name of the employee requesting leave, the dates on which leave was requested, the reason for the leave, and a statement from the employee that he or she is unable to work because of that reason. Um, because of these um, 
And then if it's, if it's specifically related to a quarantine or isolation order or to care for somebody under that order, um, you, the employer is to document the name of the government entity that issued the order. Um, and if it's self-quarantine based on um, advice of a healthcare provider or to care for somebody who's been advised to self-quarantine, the employer should document the name of the healthcare provider who gave that advice. Next slide. Um, for the childcare related leave, um, the, in addition to that information, the employer needs to document the name of the child being cared for, the name of the school, place of care, or childcare provider that has been has closed or become unavailable, and a statement from the employee that no other suitable person is available for um, to care for the child. Um, so this is important um, because if an employer intends to claim a tax credit um, for um, payment of sick leave or expanded FML, FMLA uh, wages, um, the employer would need to retain documentation to establish the basis for claiming the exemption. So the DOL has said that an employer is not required to provide the leave if, if materials sufficient to support the tax credit have not been provided. So what I know what a lot of employers have been doing in this case is generating a, um, a, a specific form request for leave that contains all of the information that, um, that is required to um, buy the, this DOL guidance. So they have that in case when they, there's ever a question um, if they, um, when they claim the tax credit. And um, if an employee isn't giving you all the information that the DOL says that an employer is entitled to, an employer can refuse to provide the leave. Next slide. Okay, that was my piece. Sorry, I went a little bit over Nate, but um, Nate's going to cover the rest of the guidance that we've gotten on the Families First uh, Act. Thanks, Chris. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, uh, huh, this the format here is a little tough to read so i'll, I'll see if i can uh, i can get through it um okay this dovetails with what chris was saying uh, on the employer notice uh he covered a lot of this uh the, i think uh the timing is the is the piece that uh we haven't addressed timing for uh when an employee needs to provide notice either for the paid leave or expanded fmla uh, it's not in advance. Uh, it's, uh, it, there's two slightly different standards here. It's as soon as practical uh, and uh, as soon as uh, reasonably foreseeable, I believe. I, I think in, in, you know, in practice, uh, it's just a, a rule of reason here. Um, for uh, for childcare-related reasons, it's arguable that it might not be advanced, but almost akin to advanced for non-childcare reasons, first workday or portion of the workday. Um, and uh, an employer must provide an employee an opportunity to cure in the event of a defective notice. Uh, Chris went over the documentation, so I'll go to the next slide. Okay, this was also, um, this also overlaps slightly with uh, Chris's uh, 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 presentation, worksite closures, um, uh, furloughs and reduction of work hours. Uh, employees are entitled to their job restoration upon return. This isn't anything uh, out, sort of out of the ordinary um, regiment for these types of leaves. 
there was some debate, uh, particularly at the last time we did this presentation over the consequences of keeping employees on payroll after the effective April 1st date of the act. There was concern among employers that it would um, obligate them to leave that was otherwise, um, that they otherwise would not be obligated to. Uh, the DOL has made clear that that is not, that that concern is not well-founded. Um, layoffs that would have occurred regardless of whether the leave was taken uh, are still permissible um, while the employee is uh, on leave, but the employer does bear the burden of proof on that one. Um, an employer is also entitled to deny restoration uh, to prevent quote, substantial and grievous economic injury, close quote. And for employers with less than 25 uh, employees, the standard here is slightly more relaxed, particularly, particularly on the showing of economic injury. It's a slightly uh, lower standard. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, quarantining or self-isolation orders. Um, Okay, uh, this, there was a question uh, the last time we did this presentation about whether orders like uh, Massachusetts have would qualify since it did not mandate but advised uh, self-isolation. Those do qualify. The, uh, the order does not have to require, can advise for restricted mobility. Um, Chris went over this piece of it before, but uh, an employee subject to a quarantine or isolation order may not take paid sick leave uh, where the employer does not have work for the employee as a result of the order or other circumstances. I, I think this limits uh, what uh, this limits more than I had anticipated what uh, leave would be where, where leave would be available under self-isolation or quarantine orders. So if a business is shuttered uh, because of this, an employee is not entitled to any leave. Uh, example is uh, someone that works at a coffee shop. Um, if the coffee shop is closed, uh, the expanded sick leave is not available. Um, Self-isolation because of uh, corona symptom, corona-like symptoms or medical advice. I, again, this is me wearing my employee side hat. I think they uh, whittled this down a bit. Um, an employee may not take paid leave uh, if the symptoms are not serious and uh, the employee can perform the job. Not a lot of guidance on what not serious means, um, but uh, there's a lot of room for uh, debate on this. Hopefully everyone uh, approaches this in good faith. Next slide, please. Okay, um, continuation of health insurance coverage. Uh, an employer is required to uh, continue to pay uh, their, the employee portion of a group, of a group health plan. Uh, the, the definition of a group, group health plan uh, is fairly broad here. Uh, basically what you think it would include, medical care, surgical care, also includes flex spending accounts, cafeteria plans, and uh, so on and so forth. The tax credit for this uh, that is available, this is something that has been clarified at least to some extent since uh, in the intervening weeks since we last uh, had this seminar. The tax credit is good. Uh, it's up for the, it's up to the amounts paid by the uh, employer, excluding 
goes from the employee's gross income. So the employer's share of uh, the health care uh, benefit is entitled to a tax credit. And I don't think there's a cap on that. Uh, there's not. Um, employees, uh, while they're on uh, expanded sick or expanded FMLA leave, uh, may, must be uh, given the opportunity to participate in new plans offered uh, during that time or to make changes uh, where uh, uh, plan changes are available generally. So, um, you know, the open leave period, um, uh, so, uh, open enrollment period. Next slide. Um, okay, this is, uh, this is a little, there, there is some uh, complexity uh, here, interaction between the various forms of leave. Uh, for and EPSLA, uh, there's a bunch of acronyms as usual floating around. EPSLA refers to the sick leave. EFMLEA refers to the expanded FMLA leave. Uh, the sick leave, uh, the employee may use the sick leave for the two uh, for the two week waiting period uh, for expanded FMLA leave. So there's a two week uh, waiting period. Uh, employees can use the uh, expanded sick leave for that. Uh, the sick leave is available regardless of whether that employee has exhausted F their FMLA or their expanded FMLA leave. Uh, an employer may not require the use of this sick leave uh, of other paid time off prior to the use of the sick leave. On the expanded uh, FMLA leave, uh, so here I think it's worth uh, noting that uh, an employee cannot take more than 12 weeks total of the expanded FMLA leave and FMLA leave combined during a 12-month period. Um, I, I think what this means is that if an employee has already taken 12 weeks of FMLA leave during the 12-week period, uh, during the 12-month period, that's it, regardless of whether uh, they have paid, uh, regardless of whether that uh, leave has been paid or not. Um, an employee may elect uh, or an, employee, an employer may require use of uh, PTO to supplement the two-thirds pay. Uh, the expanded FMLA is two-thirds pay, as Chris mentioned. Um, an employee can opt to use PTO or an employer may require PTO to bring that employee up to their full, their, their full salary uh, or their full, uh, full wages, total wages. Uh, but that additional amount uh, is, not, um, is not entitled to a tax credit. Next slide, please. Okay, multi-employer uh, plans. Uh, there's not. I don't think there's a lot of uh, 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 a lot of additional guidance that came out uh, subsequent to our last presentation. Uh, signatory employers to multi-employer plans can satisfy the requirements under the FFCRA uh, by uh, benefits pursuant to the multi-employer plan and CBA. Uh, if those are consistent with the leave required under FFCRA. If it's not, they can provide it separately, um, uh, but only doing to the extent that it's consistent with their bargaining obligations. Next slide, please. Uh, public sector employees are, uh, expanded sick leave are required for public sector employees uh, for federal, state, uh, and local employees. Um, 
the Office of Management and Budget in the, uh, the, the Federal Office of Management and Budget uh, can exclude uh, public federal employees, uh, federal employers, federal agencies. I do not believe they have done so or we have not been able to find any that have been so excluded. Different story for expanded uh, FMLA. Uh, FMLA, uh, the expansion is uh, applicable to federal, state, and local, um, but for the federal employees, uh, Title II FMLA employ, uh, employers and employees are excluded, which excludes most federal employees from the expanded uh, FMLA leave, uh, the notable exception being the Postal Service. Next slide. Enforcement, uh, the expanded sick leave uh, is enforceable under the FLSA as a minimum wage violation, anti-retaliation, there's separate anti-retaliation provisions uh, under FFCRA, and you, you will also have the uh, anti-retaliation provisions under the FLSA. Collective actions are available, uh, it's all under the FLSA, uh, and of course DOL uh, may investigate and enforce pursuant to uh, it's normal, um, it's normal uh, uh, enforcement powers. Uh, similar for expanded FMLA, actionable under FMLA, anti-retaliation provision, uh, and DOL uh, may enforce. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, briefly, uh, this is a, a, a big topic um, and one which we are not going to have uh, time to cover in this presentation, but because it is obviously relevant to the issues we have been discussing. Uh, I put in a few slides on the uh, Paycheck Protection Program under the CARES Act. Uh, this is to provide small businesses with forgivable loans. Uh, the eligibility is 500 or fewer employees, uh, which includes not only uh, for-profits, but non-profits, uh, self-employed uh, individuals, sole proprietorships, independent contractors, and religious organizations, which are obviously included under uh, nonprofit, but I think they're mentioning separately. Uh, the deadline for application is June 30th. Uh, query whether that's uh, whether that deadline is even really uh, how relevant it is. There's been a lot of reports recently uh, that the funds are limited. Uh, they are limited, and there's a lot of reports that uh, they will be depleted soon, if not as we speak. Um, the application process is, uh, is streamlined. Uh, unlike uh, ordinary loans uh, under the SBA programs, no collateral is required. Interest is, uh, is set at 1% to the extent the loan is not forgivable. Uh, payment is deferred for at least six months, again, to the extent the loan is not forgivable. Uh, repayment term of two years. Next slide, please. Okay, I'm gonna, it's going to be tough for me to read this, but uh, the, oh, how to determine the loan. Uh, the loan is determined uh, based on two months of the small business's average payroll costs, plus 25% with an overall cap of uh, 10 million. What goes into determining payroll costs gets a little bit more complicated, and there's been a lot of uh, debate about this and uh, varying guidance. Uh, payroll costs can include salaries, wages, commissions, tips, uh, employee benefits, um, and state and local taxes, not federal. Benefits are pretty broadly defined here. 
they include uh, most of uh, what you would consider health benefits and they include uh, retirement benefits. Salaries, wages, commissions, tips capped at uh, 100,000 per employee on an annualized basis. Um, so there was a question here from uh, from one of the uh, one of the attorneys on uh, the Labor and Employment Steering Commission uh, committee as to uh, executive compensation, equity incentive programs. How would they be dealt with on this? I don't have a, a clear answer on that. Uh, to, as far as I know, there has not been clear guidance uh, and given some of the other uh, what I would characterize as even more uh, global issues that have not gotten clear guidance, it's not surprising. Uh, I think that a good argument uh, is to include is that that would be subject to the 100,000 cap, um, but creative lawyering, I suppose, could bring it under uh, retirement benefits depending on the terms of the uh, plan. Uh, that being said, there have been, there's been a lot of debate on where different issues in this program fall and reasonable minds have disagreed and, and uh, the needle has moved back and forth. So uh, to be uh, TBD on that one. Uh, loan forgiveness, uh, the loan uh, is forgiven to the extent it's used for payroll costs um, and mortgage interest, rent and utilities. So those are the, um, that's pretty clear. Those are the buckets you can use uh, to, re, uh, to, um, to use the loan to the extent you want it forgiven, must be used in the eight week period following the loan and 75% of the loan must be used for payroll costs. Uh, cannot use this for uh, the sick leave, expanded sick leave or expanded FMLA that we've been discussing. Uh, and importantly, very importantly, um, if an employer reduces full-time headcount or salaries and wages, uh, loan forgiveness uh, may be reduced. Um, so the point of this program is to keep um, payroll, keep people on the payroll, uh, keep salaries uh, and wages steady. Um, and I believe that's my last slide. How they do? Good. Okay. Great, Nick. Um, Thank I you. Um, we have a question. Ahead, We've answered uh, most of the questions that were on here. So we have one left, and they, I think this one is for you. Are guaranteed payments to partners treated as payroll costs under PPP? If you know the answer to that question. I, I think the answer is, it, I, I think this is uh, hot off the presses, but I think the answer is yes. I don't, I don't know about the guaranteed part, uh, but the SBA just put out guidance, um, uh, just issued guidance on a number of different issues and that being one of them that um, uh, partner income in a general partnership uh, is eligible uh, to include in the loan application subject to the uh, $100,000 cap. Great. Well, it looks though as though we've answered the questions that have come in. Um, so um, I guess we'll turn it back over to you, Daniel, but I just want to say um, as, as chair of the, of the Labor and Employment Steering Committee for the BBA, I just want to thank Jack and Nate for staying um, so on top of these issues and 
coming back once again to uh, share your expertise um, with, with the members of the BBA. Um, it's greatly appreciated. Thank you both.